Presenting this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. Allergy season is in full swing. From asthma to food allergies, ReachMD is keeping you up to date with the latest in allergy medicine. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Todd A. Marr, Director of Pediatric Allergy Immunology at Gunderson Lutheran Medical Center in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease is in the news and can be commonly misdiagnosed. So joining us to discuss eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease is Dr. Jonathan Spurgle, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and Chief of the Allergy Section at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome, Dr. Spurgle. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Thank you for inviting me. What is eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease? Eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease, which is a mouthful often said EGID for short, a little easier to say, is really a, almost a wastebasket of different diseases. What eosinophilic gastrointestinal diseases are, or eosinophils anywhere in the GI tract, you can have disease isolated just to the esophagus or the upper, upper GI tract, just to the stomach, which would be eosinophilic gastroenteritis or eosinophil colitis, which is lower down, or down the entire tract. So it depends on which, it's really a wastebasket of different diseases, and it's important to separate these diseases out because you treat them differently, and the natural history appears to be slightly different for each disease as well. So eosinophilic esophagitis is one that I think we've been hearing a lot about. Is it more common now, do you think? Eosinophilic esophagitis is by far the most common of these disorders. And we're definitely hearing a lot more about it. If you sort of did a little chart or did like a medical search on the number of articles published, there's a nice sharp line going straight up. So there's a lot more information about the disease. The disease is probably rising just like other allergic diseases. Other allergic diseases have doubled in the last 10 to 20 years. Eosinophilic esophagitis, or EE for short, clearly hasn't gone that much as risen. It's also, but if you look at the number of patients, it's risen almost tenfold or twentyfold. And some of the rise is also probably due to the fact that we now know this disease exists. We know how to diagnose the disease. So we know, of course, it was, it's not an easy diagnosis to make. You have to go down and actually do an endoscopy and find inflammation in the esophagus. So it was not a disease that people were reluctant to make. It wasn't some, a procedure was not as easy to do 20 years ago. So some of the rise, I think, is increased recognition, but some of the rise, is, it's still a true rise, just like other allergic diseases. Okay. So you started to discuss a little bit about how it's diagnosed. So why don't you, let's expand on that. Is it skin tests, blood tests? How do you make this diagnosis? So the diagnosis as in most things in medicine, is like what we like to call a clinical pathological diagnosis. There is no, unfortunately, no skin test, blood test for this disease. The only way you can diagnose this is to do an endoscopy with a biopsy. An, endo- an upper endoscopy, you're just even going down to look without the biopsy, does not necessarily show that this will not improve disease or prove the disease. You can go down and look, and the esophagus can look completely normal. But 20% of the time when it looks normal, you can actually have the disease. When they go down visually, there's a couple of features visually that suggest the disease, something called furrows, which are long lines, or what they call tracheization, that rings that go around the side. So those things, or just esophagus is swollen, or evidence that disease may be there. 
But the way to truly make this diagnosis is to go down, do a biopsy, and look under a microscope showing eosinophils there. But unfortunately, you can get eosinophils from a few other things. You can get eosinophils from standard reflux, usually not as high in the numbers as you do with eosinophilic esophagitis, but typically reflux gives about 5 10 eosinophils, but there are case reports of people having 20 to 30 to 40. So that's why before you make this diagnosis, you have to rule out reflux. And typically what we do is put patients on a proton pump inhibitor from about a month prior to the biopsy to make sure that that variable, that area of confusion is not there. And then you have to rule out some other rare diseases, drug allergies. There's a couple case reports of drug allergies or Crohn's disease or parasitic diseases causing it, but those are usually pretty obviously that there's something else going on at the time. But reflux is by far the most common one that gets confused with this with eosinophilic esophagitis. So what are the symptoms that providers should be kind of looking out for? The symptoms, like many things, vary by age. In infants and toddlers, it's probably the hardest to diagnose, and that's why it's often several years delay for onset of symptoms to the diagnosis. Because infants and toddlers often present with standard reflux, which is a really common symptom in infants and toddlers. The only thing is it doesn't get better. You put them on a PPI, they don't improve. Often a lot of infants and toddlers present with feeding problems. It hurts so much they don't want to eat, so they have some mild failure to thrive. Not a lapis, but it's milder. While the sort of the younger, sort of moving up in age now to the sort of young school age children, they get more reflux and a little more diffuse abdominal pain. And your differential diagnosis of abdominal pain is huge. But when you rule everything else out, they're not getting better. There's one thing to think about. When you hit adolescents and adults, the, the, some of the symptoms are much more clearly suggestive of the disease. One of the symptoms that typically we see are dysphagia, so really trouble swallowing, or food impaction. You actually swallow food and it gets stuck. When you look in teenagers and adults, that is almost over half the time when when adults, when they find those symptoms, it is now eosinophilic esophagitis. So those symptoms are, if you have a patient with those symptoms, I think at that point you really have to make sure it's not. Well, the other ones, and the reflux, reflux is such a common thing, you have to make sure it's rule out reflux. And when it's in the teenagers, you have to rule out eosinophilic esophagitis first. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics and Allergy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Marr, and joining me to discuss eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease is Dr. Jonathan Spurgle, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and Chief of the Allergy Section at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. So, you were just mentioning that, in essence, in a younger child, it's a diagnosis of exclusion almost, whereas I thought it was interesting for the food impaction. This is something that a lot of emergency rooms and urgent care centers with more ERs were seeing, and now you're really saying, boy, in that case, you better rule it out. Yeah, because most of the times, at least in the adult series, they found over half of those cases were due to eosinophilic esophagitis. Wow. So... Overall, then, the other thing that we've seen linked with this is diet. And, you know, is diet a factor? Is there something that can be done with your diet? Changes into uh, specific formulas or elemental diets, etc. Can you expound on that a little? Sure. In most patients, diet is probably the main cause of the disease. In 
if you mean the way you really prove it, you put someone who has this disease on an elemental diet. The elemental diet is basically amino acid formula. And they get better. So it's whether that's bowel rest or element of foods, it's just that it's definitely improving. And you really know it's foods when you start adding foods back, disease comes back. But putting people on elemental formula is not easy. The stuff generally doesn't taste that good, and it's expensive. But we do know foods cause it. The question is how to figure out what foods. And there are two general approaches. One is sort of a directed approach. Where you, when you do it by testing, you sort of test for the foods and say, okay, these foods are the most likely to cause it. And I'll expand on that in a second. The other one is sort of say, okay, hey, we know over time from reading all the papers, these are the most likely foods, let's eliminate that. For that one, that's sort of quote, removing the most common foods. That works at least in, in pediatrics, looks like about 70% of the time, in adults around 50% of the time. And I think the difference is that adults have more diverse diets than pediatric patients do. And it was really done by the work of the group out of Northwestern, who's really led the way on this work. And they found by eliminating milk, eggs, soy, wheat, peanuts and tree nuts and fish and shellfish, which makes up their, what they call their six-food diet, they would have the, the success rate of 50 to 75%, which is not bad. But that's a, still a tough diet. When you're eliminating all those foods, that's still pretty hard. So we have worked on doing sort of more of the directed approach. And when we do the direct approach, when we test for food allergies, there's a few ways you can test for food allergies. The way that most people are familiar with is the standard skin test. Since you're on the allergist channel here, skin test is a drop on the skin and we scratch. And that looks out great looking for IgE-mediated allergies. But a lot of the food allergies in eosinophilic esophagitis seem to be non-IgE-mediated allergies. And the reasons we know that, if you remove foods just based on specific IgE, so the, the immunocaps, no one gets better. And if you do it just based on the foods found in skin tests, less than 50% resolve. So we know there was a fair amount of non-IgE-mediated food allergies because the IgE testing doesn't completely work. So there's a, another sort of testing called the ATP patch test, which was really pioneered originally out of Europe and really brought here by our group. And we found that looking for non-IG allergies, you can sort of do that testing. And what we have found by doing the combination of the standard allergy skin testing as well as the patch testing, we're able to improve our directed diet to about 80%. It's not perfect. And I think some of the issue is that we may not be testing enough foods. We don't test for every food. Also, the testing is still not perfect. We're still, obviously, we're missing things. So it, it leads us, so when we don't succeed, we can go to the elemental diet or we'll go to the six-food elimination diet, try to figure out what's the most common things to get better. But foods definitely cause it. But the problem is you have to balance quality of life. I mean, you can get people better by putting on an elemental diet, but the question is that the best way of going? Do we need to go to medical therapies? For primary care providers, that basically the Uminocap or RAS testing for foods for specifically looking for this would really not be high yield at all, and they probably shouldn't be ordering it if they're looking at it from the standpoint of an eosinophilic esophagitis. 
You are completely correct. This is a disease that I don't know if primary care providers, it'd be difficult for them to manage. I mean, this is a disease that even an allergist or a gastroenterologist by themselves is difficult to manage. This is a disease that you truly need the classic team approach because you need the allergist to help direct the diet and figure out what's the best testing. And you need the gastroenterologist to really follow them from the GI side and seeing what's until until we have a non-invasive marker of disease, we need the gastroenterologist to go down and look and say, hey, things are better. Oh, things are not better. Because it's, so it, this is the disease that we truly need a team approach. Okay. So then briefly for medical therapy, what does the team use? The standard medical therapy at this point is sort of taking your asthma medications poorly, which sounds sort of funny, but you take your asthma inhalers, whether inhaled fluticasone or nebulized budesonide, and you basically swallow them. So you take your asthma inhaler without a spacer. And the idea is to try to get that medication onto the esophagus. Or they take the nebulized budesonide, mix it up in a solution, and swallow it. This is clearly off-label use of medication. So I have to put that one disclaimer because there are no medications currently approved for this disease. And this is the way that people have been treating the disease, and there's a bunch of reports in the literature with a success rate anywhere from 50 to about 80% success rate treating patients with medical therapy. Other medical therapy that people tend to use for eosinophilic disorders like chromalin and montelukast have been tried and unfortunately do not work. They have, they've had no success. And the same with antihistamines by themselves. They do not work in this disease. You need a um, either diet or topical corticosteroids. There are a few new drugs under clinical investigation at the current time who are early in the um, experimental process and maybe the next couple of years we'll have a, a drug that's truly approved for this disease. Well, what's the prognosis for these people? Is it lifelong? Do they have to stay on this treatment forever? So what we know at the current time is that it does appear to be lifelong. I think um, like most atopic diseases we have, once you have the history of allergic rhinitis or asthma, you really have it for your whole life. I think looking at our large cohort, we find about 10 to 20% outgrow some of the food allergies. Say a patient's allergic to five foods, they'll outgrow to one or two of them. But we've had probably less than 1%, and I don't know if that number is going to rise as we follow them longer, outgrow all the food allergies. But it seems to be relatively rare to outgrow all the food allergies. So at this point, I think it's like other allergic diseases that we follow as allergists, that it does appear to be a lifelong disease. I'd like to thank my guest from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, Dr. Jonathan Spurgle. Dr. Spurgle, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit acaai.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.